please turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 13. I'm going to give you a really quick quiz as we start. It's just a one-question quiz, a really fast quiz. What is the general setting of the book of James? What's happening in the churches to whom James writes? Suffering. Thank you. Yeah, we've been talking about it for three months. Oh, great. One person got it. Mm, I feel good about myself. Suffering. There's suffering, right? Probably most of you are suppressing that. And you're thinking, thank goodness we're almost done with James and we can get on to like joy and Philippians or something like that, right? Uh, I have actually really enjoyed our study of the book of James. I've probably gotten more out of it this time than any other time that I've studied the book. I hope that you've experienced the same. And if not, just don't tell me. All right, okay, so we are going to wrap up our study of the book of James this morning together. I want to read beginning in chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. Suffering can destroy us. When we respond in frustration and anger and bitterness that settles into our character, suffering can destroy us. Suffering can destroy the community when the community, rather than turning to God, turns in on itself and against one another, begins to bite and devour and consume one another, suffering can destroy us individually and as a community. Suffering can also make us stronger. Suffering can build character in us when we count it all joy and we endure patiently. And suffering can build the community. It's what James began talking about last week. He was answering the question, how should we as a community respond when we are in the midst of suffering or when some of our members are suffering? How should we respond? And James says, with patient endurance. Not not running away, not fleeing, not escaping, not turning in on one another, but patiently enduring, knowing that God is creating character in us, but also knowing that Jesus Christ will someday soon return and he will set all things right. And we can trust him. The judge is right at the door. He's about to be there. Patiently endure. Now James continues his answer to that question, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. I want you to read with me again verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. I think chapter 5, verse 13, in a sense, is an overview of, of this final paragraph. It's a synthesis or a summary. This is the range of human experience. Are you suffering? Then pray. Are you blessed? Are you cheerful? Sing praises. That's the range of human experience. And it's not a a, a nice idea. You know, if you're suffering, pray. It's a command. (laughs) James is really fond of commands. He's issued a lot of commands. Here's one more command. If you are suffering, here's how you should respond. Pray. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle to know how should I respond when I'm suffering. In the midst of suffering, what is the right thing to pray? Do you feel guilty about praying just to have it end? Is that, is that okay? Is that acceptable to say, God, please make it stop. God, please let me find a way out. God, enough. 
Is that okay? I want to put your minds at ease this morning. Absolutely. I think you're crazy. There's something wrong with you if you don't pray that prayer. That is just the natural, normal response in suffering. When Jesus was in the garden, how did he pray first? First, he said, God, take this cup from me. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to experience the pain that I know is coming. I don't want the separation from you. I don't want torture. I don't want death. I don't want that. Jesus prayed that way, and you can too. Without guilt, without shame, that is absolutely normal and natural. Uh, Jesus also moved through that, didn't he? And he concluded his prayer like this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. A couple years ago, I read a book called The Heavenly Man by Brother Yoon. He was a believer in mainland China, house church pastor, tortured for his faith. Uh, Many of the believers in his church were also tortured. And he said this, he said, don't pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in a way that reflects his love and power. But I promise you, when I'm at the beginning of suffering, I can't pray that. And Jesus's prayer didn't start here. It started with, take this cup from me. Now, when I'm in the midst of the trial and I'm moving through it, God moves me this direction. When I see that I've asked for the trial to be removed, but it hasn't been removed immediately, and I move a little further and see it's probably not going to be removed anytime soon, then I move to this place and I say, God, please make my shoulders broader, make my back stronger. Train me to suffer well. Acts chapter 4, the apostles, James, or Peter and John specifically, had been uh, tortured for their faith in pronouncing the gospel of Christ. And they returned to the rest of the believers and they prayed this together. They said, now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They didn't pray for the overthrow of the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities, even for that matter. They said, God, give us strength. The apostle Paul, after being tortured, would pray, God, Give me strength. To the churches, he would say, please pray for me just that I would be bold. Did he enjoy the suffering? No. But he knew that God had allowed it, and so he prayed for endurance. Are any of you suffering, James says? Then you must pray. That's the right response. But if you're cheerful and things are really going well, sing praises. This is the word from which we get psalms. Start singing. Sing praises. Honor God with your lips. Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Be filled with the Spirit. That is, let the Spirit be in control of you. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Paul says, sing. Because some among you are going to be suffering and they're going to need to hear you rejoice. And they're going to need to hear reminders of the goodness and the faithfulness of God in the midst of their suffering. So sing. And you don't need to do it just at church. In Ephesians, Paul says all the time, be filled with the Spirit and sing to one another. You don't like to sing? Well, you know, send the words to a song by email so people don't have to listen to you. But you've reminded them of the goodness and the grace of God. Send them a link to a song. We sing with our kids at home. Sometimes we sing in the car. We sing. 
It's in song we're reminded of the goodness and the grace of God. This is a great season to do that, right? Christmas season. We're singing Christmas songs. I love the reminders in these songs of God's provision of Jesus Christ. I love Christmas songs. Got them playing in my my truck all the time. I think Elf said it best. The best way to spread, spread Christmas cheer, right? Singing loud for all to hear, right? So let's take Elf's advice. Good advice. Sing praises because some will be suffering and they need to hear you praising. Now that's an overview. That's a synthesis. But the general experience of James' audience is suffering. And so James expands what he means by prayer in the midst of suffering in the rest of the verses. Let's read again beginning in verse 13 and move on. He says, is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Now specifically, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. James says, pray for one another. And there are two sides to this. Sometimes you're the one who is seeking prayer. Is anyone among you sick? It says, call for the elders. Call and ask others to pray for you. I confess, sometimes that's hard for me to do. It's a very humbling thing. But for me to go and say, Joel, I need you to pray for me, is acknowledging what's happening in my life right now, I can't handle. And I humble myself before God and a brother in Christ and I say, pray for me. I need you to pray. You ever struggle with that? Pray for me. It's not just a good idea. It's a command. With benefits. Notice again what he says. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call. Let him call for the elders of the church there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Literally, it will save the one who is sick. Remember in James 2, we looked at this word. It is literally the word for salvation. Salvation from what? In the context, physical sickness. Now, this short paragraph raises several really thorny theological issues. It seems that James is implying that sickness is caused by sin. Is that true? Is sickness caused by sin? Well, the answer is sometimes. John chapter 5. Jesus is uh, moving through Jerusalem and he comes to a a pool. And there's a man that's been lying there for 38 years. He's been sick for 38 years. And the legend of this area has it that an angel comes down once a year, remember, and moves the waters of the pool. Whoever gets down first gets healed. But this man can't get down there. He can't crawl fast enough. He tries to lay close right by the edge. And Jesus sees him and he says, hey, uh, why are you laying there? What do you want? What are, you, what are you seeking? What are you after? Can, can I do anything for you? The man says, I, I want to be well, but the waters are stirred and somebody beats me to the water. I can't get there. Jesus said, well, I have another idea for you. Why don't you just stand up? Pick up your pallet and go home. And the man does, and it's an amazing miracle, and he's praising God. And of course, Jesus did the miracle on the Sabbath, right? I love that. He just tweaking the, you know, just poking the Pharisees in the eye. Let me, let me bug you theologically. I'm going to heal on the set. You know, and, and so there's this kind of 
praising God, but also an uproar is, is happening and Jesus slips away. And they come to the man and they say, well, who did this to you? I mean, for you. He shouldn't have done it on the Sabbath. Well, you, you know, you need to tell us so we can go arrest him for healing you. I mean, they're, they're so bent, right? They're just so messed up in their thinking. But the man doesn't know who it was. He doesn't know who Jesus is. And Jesus has slipped away. Later, Jesus comes and he finds him and says this. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. You see what Jesus is saying? Sometimes your sickness is a result of your sin. Sometimes that's how God disciplines us in this life. He says to the man, don't sin again so that your next state is worse than your previous. Don't sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we know that there are a lot of bad things happening in the church in Corinth. There's immorality of various kinds. There's drunkenness and gluttony and all kinds of things going on. It's happening during the worship service. And Paul says, as a result, some of you are sick. Some of you have even fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for dying. Some of you have died as a result of your sin. You should stop that. Sometimes sin results in sickness. There's a physical manifestation of the discipline of God, but not always, right? Not always. Further on in the book of John, John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples and they come upon a man who is born blind, blind from birth. And his disciples, the great theologians that they are, say, who sinned? Because in their worldview, there are only two possibilities. Either this man sinned somehow in the womb of his mother, I don't know how, or his parents sinned, And that's why he's blind. Those are the only options. Those are the only possibilities. And Jesus says, no, your theology is way too narrow. Actually, he was born blind so that God could glorify himself and show his power in him. He says to the man, be healed. And the man is healed immediately and God is glorified in him. But from birth, he suffered. He suffered physically. He also probably suffered in his community when people came by and they said, well, why don't you just confess your sin? Why don't you get your parents just to admit what they did wrong? And he searched his heart and he could find nothing and he was left in a theological quandary. And then Jesus came along and helped him understand, no, you didn't do anything wrong. God wanted to use your sickness to honor and glorify himself. And you know, sometimes things transpire in our lives and we don't know the connection. Did we do something or did we not? We don't know. But oftentimes when we're physically suffering, God does use that suffering to point out sin in our lives. He squeezes us through the trial and shows us the sin in our lives so that we can confess. So that we can confess. So notice the second benefit is forgiveness. Verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will save or heal or restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if, if it is that he has committed sin, they will, the sins will be forgiven. Okay. James is saying in the case that sin is the cause of this sickness, there will be forgiveness. That raises another theological problem in my mind, because I thought that all of my sins were forgiven at the cross. Didn't Jesus pay it all? All to him I owe? Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. It's gone, right? All sin's forgiven at the cross. Remember that the wages of sin is death. 
That is eternal separation from God in the context of Romans. The wages of sin is eternal separation from God. And if you pay that debt yourself, you will be eternally separated. But Jesus died to pay that debt for you. The moment that you believe that Jesus actually died for you, not just the sins of the world, but for you, your debt of eternal separation is removed fully, finally, completely. You will not have to pay it. And Jesus doesn't have to pay it again. He just paid it once. You now become a son or a daughter of God. You will always be in his family. You cannot be removed from his family. You are secure in that. God will be, and forever will be, your father. But sometimes, children disobey their parents. Once in a while. Looking at my kids. Happens once in a while, very infrequently. But sometimes we disobey our heavenly father. And when we do, we are not cast out of the family, but our fellowship with our heavenly father is broken and it needs to be restored. How is it restored? Through confession and forgiveness. That's what John means, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is not talking about the once and for all removal of the debt through the death of Jesus Christ. He's talking about ongoing cleansing through the work of Christ. And Jesus is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins because he already paid the debt. He can go to the Father and say, Father, remember the debt has been paid for this one. Restore to fellowship. Restore to fellowship. And so the blood of Jesus Christ in that sense continuously cleanses us and keeps us in fellowship with God when we confess. But notice, James says, confess to one another. He's not talking simply about confession to God. Verse 15, verse 16 rather. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. And once upon a time, there were four pastors. And they used to meet for fellowship. One day one of them said, you know, I think that we should start confessing our sins to one another. Because our people come to us and they confess sins and it's really cleansing for them and purifying for them. So I think that we should start. And after a little bit of debate, they all agreed. They said, all right, we'll, do, we'll, we'll, we'll try this practice. And the first one went and he said, you know, I need to confess that sometimes I sneak away from church in the middle of the day and I go to the movies. Oh, okay, brother, well, we forgive you. Next guy goes, well, sometimes I sneak out of church, I go into the woods behind and I, I smoke a cigar. Oh, brother, that's bad, but we forgive you. And third guy said, well, at home at night, we play cards. Oh, man, brother, we forgive you. Come to the fourth guy and they say, what, do you, what have you got to confess? And he, he just looks at him and he goes, no, I'm not going to say anything. What, man? You know, we have all, we've all ponied up. We've all said what we're struggling with. Our sins guy goes, no, no, he's resisting. He won't confess. He won't say anything. Finally, they press him and they press him. He goes, all right, already. I struggle with the sin of gossip. <laughs> Confession is a little spooky, isn't it? What is the other person going to do with that confession? Are they going to take it? and Spread it? Are they going to hold it and use it against you? I don't think James is exhorting us to confess to the world. 
I think we confess to those that we have hurt. We confess to those that we have harmed with our sin. So I use my brother Joel again. I go to Joel and I say, Joel, please forgive me because I hurt you. I confess. To confess means literally to say the same thing. Joel is saying one thing about my words or my attitudes, and I need to say the same thing. And when I say the same thing, that validates the hurt and the harm that I've caused in his life. It also frees me because I no longer have to create a version of the truth or twist the truth or lie or cover any longer. The truth is out in the open and there's nothing any longer between the two of us. I'm free before God and I'm free before Joel. And that's what confession does for us. When it's in the dark, Satan holds it over our heads and he's continuously condemning us. And when we bring it to the light, we don't have to hide it any longer and we're free. Several years ago, a man named Frederick Buechner wrote a a wonderful short book. It's called Telling Secrets. In it, he said, It is important to tell, at least from time to time, the secret of who we truly and fully are. Because otherwise, we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are. And little by little, come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth in hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. And we all, we all do this. And so from time to time, he said, we we just have to tell the true story. And when we harm one another, James says, we need to confess, say the same thing. Pray for one another. The first half of that is to seek prayer, to humbly go to others and say, I need you. And I cannot do this on my own. The second half of the equation is that we give prayer to those who need it. Verse 14 Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call. He must seek for prayer. He must call the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, on behalf of your elders, I just want to remind you that the elders are not magic. (laughs) Our elders are, are not magical. They are godly men, but they're really, in a sense, not different from any of the rest of us. We believe in the priesthood of believers I think that's taught in the Bible. That is, every believer is a priest. Every believer has access to God, full access. God hears and listens and responds because we are all co-heirs of the grace of life. In fact, notice in verse 16, he says, therefore confess your sins to one one another and pray for one another. This is a command that applies to the entire body of Christ. But the elders have a specific role because they are the representatives of the church. They hold the highest place of authority and responsibility to shepherd the flock. And so when you're sick, you call for the elders because they represent the entire church in prayer. When you realize that things are broken in your life and maybe it's physical, a physical illness, or maybe it is an emotional thing, or it's a relational, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's, it's your children, maybe it's parenting, it's some issue and you call and you say, Please pray for me. Our elders will pray for you. We begin every meeting in prayer. We share prayer requests and we pray as long as we need to pray. And then we do our business. And many times we have people come in and the elders pray for them at the meeting. If you can't make the time of our meetings, 
then elders will meet with you somewhere in the church between services, or they will come to your home, or they will come to the hospital room, and they will pray, and we anoint with oil. The reason we do that is because we believe the oil symbolizes the presence of God's Holy Spirit. Because people don't heal people, God heals people. And so with the oil, we are reminding ourselves we can't heal anyone, but God's Spirit is powerful enough to heal, and His presence is here with us. And so, God, we call upon you to heal. And our elders will anoint you with oil and they will pray in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and pray that you be healed. Again, this paragraph has several thorny theological issues. Should you then just ask for prayer and anointing? Or should believers actually use medical advancements of our day? Should we just pray? And if we don't just rely on prayer, are we evidencing that we lack faith? Well, in Isaiah, King Hezekiah became deathly sick. He got some kind of infection, and apparently the infection was beginning to go septic and spread through his body. And he called Isaiah, and Isaiah came, and he prayed for him. And you know what he did next? After praying, Isaiah called for the doctors. And the doctors came, and they applied the medicine of their day to him, and he was healed. How was he healed? Through prayer and medicine. Not either or, but both and. And Isaiah's use of medicine in those days did not represent a lack of faith, but a use of one of the means that God has provided. And so, pray and use the means available that God has given. Second, challenging theological issue, why doesn't God always heal? Why doesn't he always heal? Notice again with me verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. That sounds to me like a promise. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. But notice there's a condition there. It says the prayer offered in faith. So does that mean that this promise only applies if you have enough faith? And if you don't get healed, you didn't have enough faith? Is that that what James is saying? I will tell you, there are a lot of churches that teach that and believe that. And I'll also tell you, I think it's absolute and utter heresy. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you pray for healing and you don't get healed, it's never because you didn't have enough faith. Never, ever. Let me illustrate that for you. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 6. Jesus has started his ministry and then he has uh, moved throughout Galilee and he's returned to his hometown. And he's preaching in his hometown And at first they're a little bit responsive, but then after a while they say, just who does he think he is? You know, this is the son of Mary and Joseph, the carpenter's son, and now he's standing up and he's reading the Bible to us and telling us what we should do and shouldn't do. One accounting of the event, they actually grabbed Jesus and they took him to the edge of the city. They wanted to throw him off a cliff and kill him. And it says in one account that he did not do many miracles because of their unbelief. In the other account, it says he could not do many miracles because of their unbelief. In other words, it wasn't because they had small faith that he didn't do miracles. It's because they had no faith. They had rejected Jesus. They didn't want anything from Jesus. They might have wanted a little magic show, 
but they didn't want Jesus. He didn't do many miracles because of their unbelief, their rejection of him. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you simply want God to work in your life, that alone is enough faith. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you want God to work, but you don't see him heal you, it is never because you lacked the adequate amount of faith. It's because somehow in the sovereignty of God, he chose not to heal right now. He doesn't always choose to heal. Remember, we looked a few weeks ago at at Paul's own experience with his thorn in the flesh, which certainly was some form of a physical malady. It was a thorn in his flesh, in his physical being, in his body, and he prayed three times, God, take it away from me. God, take it away from me. God, take it away from me. And God said no. Do you remember why God said no? Because Paul, if I don't leave it in you, you're going to work out of your strength rather than out of weakness and my strength. And so I'm going to leave it because my power is perfected. When you are weak, I can show how strong I am. People see in you a a broken physical vessel who still does remarkable things in the power of the Spirit, and that's what I want to display in you. So Paul, no, I won't. I will not take it away. Another interesting line at the very end of Paul's life. He knows that he is about to be killed for his faith. He writes one final letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy. It's his last letter. And at the very end of his letter, you know how he'll often greet so-and-so and and greet so-and-so? Well, at the very end, there's a wonderful line. You should always read those greetings. He says at the very end, he says, Trophimus, my co-worker Trophimus, I left him sick in Miletus. Well, why, Paul? Why'd you leave him sick? Paul, you're a healer. Remember, Paul had, had healed the sick. Paul had raised the dead. Remember the guy who fell out of the, he got tired because Paul's sermon got boring. He fell out of the, the, the window. And Paul said, well, you know, that won't do very good for the church service right now. So you know, he goes downstairs, heals the guy, puts him back and keeps preaching, right? Paul's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. So Paul, why did you leave him sick? This was not the will of God at that moment. Because people don't heal people. God heals people through our prayer, but not by us. We don't heal. And so the prayer of faith is, your will be done, if this is your will. That's not a lack of faith. That's a lack, that is acknowledging that God is ultimately sovereign. And God is in control. And sometimes he chooses to leave the sickness or the illness or the malady or the weakness in us so that he can more effectively glorify himself through our weakness, not through our strength. So, why pray? Well, I want to, uh, before I get to that point, I, I, I put this, I know you can't just scribble down this URL real quick, so don't even try. It'll be on the slides. Slides will be posted on our website. Uh, This is a a 30-minute testimony by Joni Erickson Tata. She was paralyzed from the neck down and uh, has lived in her paralysis for many years now. And this is her testimony of her movement with God and her, her acceptance of God's will when he didn't heal her, but her understanding of how he is even more effectively glorified himself through her weakness. I cannot encourage you strongly enough. Just take 30 minutes this week, copy-paste, click.
click, watch this, just 30 minutes is so powerful. She can say it much more powerfully than I can. Wonderful illustration. Now, why pray? If God is sovereign and God knows all things, why do we pray? For that matter, honestly, why do we do anything? Right? If God knows all things and he's in control of all things, why do we do anything? Why do we share our faith? If God elects and we believe in election, affirm the doctrine of election, why do we share our faith? Why do we pray? Simplest answer is this. God said so. Right? (laughs) He says, pray for one another. Because I told you to. Do the work of an evangelist. Because I told you to. But shrouded somewhere in the mystery of the sovereignty of God is the way that he really genuinely involves us in the history of this earth. It's, it's, it's shrouded in the mystery of the omniscience and sovereignty of God. But he says, you go do the work of an evangelist and I'm going to work through you. You will be the means. You pray because your prayer moves my hand. How? How does that work, God? He does not tell us. Does it accelerate the effective outworking of his will? I don't know. But, James says, the fervent prayer of a righteous person, that is any person who's walking with the Lord, the fervent prayer of a righteous person gets things done. This is the word for work energetically. The fervent prayer of people walking with the Lord accomplishes much or gets things done. Things happen. Things happen, and he uses an illustration for us here. Read with me verse 17. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. He says, Elijah was a man just like us. And if you go to Israel up on Mount Carmel, you will see it, this really cool, amazing statue of Elijah. This is right about the time he's doing battle with the prophets of Baal. He's about to, he's got his foot on the neck of one of them. He's about to whack his head off. So, you know, he preaches a lot, but he, man, he carries a sword too. He's, he's a pretty remarkable cat. You remember the story, okay? Remember the story. The people in Israel in the northern, northern kingdom are disobeying God. They're not following God. And so Elijah prays that God would show them physical evidence of their disobedience. Last week we talked about this. Rain is a sign of blessing. No rivers flowing throughout Israel except for the Jordan, which is not accessible for most of the country. So they are dependent upon rainwaters. The right amount at the right time. Not too much, not too little. Not too soon, not too late. And if they don't get it, they starve. Elijah says, God, show them that you are paying attention to their sin. So for three years, six months, there is no rain. There is drought. And then Elijah, the prompting of the Lord, realizes it's time to bring this to a head. And so he, he, he issues a challenge. I want you to join me on top of Mount Carmel. And let's see who is actually Lord. The word Baal, Baal, means Lord, Yahweh is Lord, the self-existent one. It's Lord on Lord. Who is the real Lord? So all the prophets of Baal gather, several hundred of them. And there's Elijah all by himself. And here's the challenge. 
We're going to make an offering. And whichever God responds by fire, that's the true God. Deal? All right. They say, all right. Because Baal is the God of, of, of up in the skies, in the storms. He lives on the mountaintop. Certainly he can send fire or lightning from heaven. And so they prepare their offering. And remember, they, they march around. They're going all day. And it's hot. There's no rain. Remember, there's no rain. It's hot. It's dusty. It's incredibly dry. And they're getting exhausted. And finally, they start to cut themselves and they're bleeding. And what they're doing is they're trying to get God, Baal, to pay attention. Baal, we're bleeding down here. <laughs> Wake up. Send fire from heaven. And so they are dehydrated and they're bleeding. And finally, they, they collapse. They're utterly exhausted. And Elijah's going, is it my turn now? Okay, is it my turn? All right, let me build. And he builds his altar. He puts his offering on top. And then what does he do? He takes water and he pours gallon after gallon of water. In the midst of a three and a half year drought, he says, go to the cisterns and drain them dry. This is all we got left. And pour it out to God. Because he knows there is no problem with water if you are worshiping the one true God. So he pours all the water out and then he prays one short prayer. God, answer. Boom. Fire comes down from heaven. The offering is burned up. The water is evaporated. The stones are burned up. There's just a hole in the ground, right? And everybody goes, whoa. The Lord, he is God. And they pick up their swords, they join Elijah, and they whack off all the prophets' heads. It's amazing, right? I mean, it's really, uh, I would love to have been there. But what happens right after that? Right after that, Elijah runs away because he's afraid of Jezebel. Okay, one bitter, cranky queen, right? He's just wiped out hundreds of, of prophets, and now he's afraid of just this, this Jezebel. But he runs and he runs and he hides himself. And he says, God, I am so depressed. Would you just kill me? James says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. In other words, James is not pointing us to Elijah to reflect the fact that Elijah was this amazing prophet of God, but the fact that Elijah was just like us. He got discouraged. He got depressed. But he was powerful in prayer. Elijah put on his pants one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. Well, our prophets probably didn't wear pants back then. He put on his, his camel tunic, right? Just like everybody else. He's just a normal guy. He has the same nature you have. But the fervent prayer of a righteous person, a person who's walking with God, gets things done. That is how God has chosen to act. And when we come together and pray, that prayer represents the faith of the whole community, not just an individual. One other story from the Gospels. Remember, there's a paralyzed man. He can do nothing for himself, but he has four friends. And so they pick up the pallet and they walk to see Jesus, believing that Jesus can heal. And they get to the place but it's packed. They can't get in. So they walk up to the roof because there was often an external stairway up to the roof and the roof was flat 
And it was uh, beams of wood that were packed in with mud and straw. And so they get up on top on this flat roof. Maybe it had stone as well. They're pulling stones off and mud off and straw off. And they're pounding through and they're pounding through. And there's Jesus and he's seeing the dirt and the dust and everything's just falling down in front of him. And then they lower this man down in front of Jesus. And it says, Jesus seeing their faith. Jesus was responding to their faith. Not just the, the paralyzed man but the faith of all of his friends. And when we join together, God is responding to our faith. God, we believe together that you can, if it is your will. James says, pray for one another. And finally, he says, rescue one another. Verse 19. My brethren, if any one of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Death is the great destroyer. And what James means here is not eternal separation from God. He means the earthly consequences of our sin. The soul that dies or the life that dies is the life that's wasted because it's walked down the path of death and the path of sin. And all the consequences that come from that, broken relationships, and in this context, ultimately, illness and even death. And James says, as soon as you see a brother or sister going down that path, step in. If you really love them, you will intervene. My favorite Proverbs is chapter 27, verse 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Are you bound like that to other believers? Are there, are there people in your life that if you just took a small step away would step in and say, you're on the path of death? Are there people that would come to you when they're hurting and say, pray for me? Are you that bound together? That's really what it means to be involved in the community of believers. That's what it means to be in the church. This is not the church. We are the church. And we need one another. If we have learned anything from the book of James, it is this. We will all suffer. We will all suffer. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's another. But in the context of our suffering, it can either crush us or it can build us. When we endure with joy, God creates character within us individually, but also he creates character for the church and we grow in strength together when we support and encourage one another, realizing God's creating character now and someday Jesus will return and he'll set all things right. And so we can trust him. Now in the meantime, as we live together and we suffer together, what can we do for one another? Just a few applications as we close. First, pray for one another. I mean this, do it. Pray for one another. Ask others, how can I pray? And then actually pray for them. Every time I go to the hospital, I'm praying for someone. I walk out. Inevitably, I see a family and I can tell they're just torn up. Something is happening. I always stop and I say, can I pray for you? I don't tell them what I do. I don't ask them their circumstances. I just say, can I pray? I've never been turned down. They're not asking my prayer because I'm a pastor. I just stop and say, can I pray? And they say, would you please? Because they're broken and they're hurting and they realize circumstances are beyond what they can handle. And they say, please, would you? And so I just stop right there and I pray. Because I have seen God do miracles. I have seen God do miracles. 
I've seen God also answer no. But I trust that's his will. Pray for one another. Pray specifically for one another. If you ask me to pray for you, uh, I will ask you to send me an email. Because I don't remember anything on Sunday mornings. I'm really focused, right? And I'm just, so I'm not putting you off. You send me an email. As soon as the email comes, I pray. Okay? And I want you to give it to me in specifics because then I can see specific answers. And I'm going to ask you, follow up and tell me, how did God answer? I want to know. Pray specifically for one another. Pray for everything. Because God cares about absolutely everything that's happening in our lives. Because he loves us. Because we're his children. He loves us. Finally, pray humbly before God. Because we don't know his will. But we do know him. And we know his will is always good and perfect and best. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can trust you even when we cannot see all of the specifics of your perfect will being worked out in our lives. We trust you because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because it's true. You sent your son and he died for us so that forever all things could be healed. Father, I do pray that you would make us into a praying community, that we would love one another so deeply that we would do labor for one another in prayer. And Father, I pray that you would bind us together, that our suffering would draw us together and not push us apart, and that it would create character and strength in us, that we would be bold in our faith, and that people would see the way that we live with one another, and they'd be drawn to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Um, And I want to uh, just remind you students that uh, I will be praying for you over the break. If you send me an email, I will specifically pray for you that uh, God would give you opportunities to share your faith and protect you while you're home. So I'd love to pray for you. God bless you. See you in a few weeks, students.